This sermon was preached at University Park Baptist Church in Houston, Texas. For more information about UPBC, visit upbchouston.org. Show us yourself now. We admit we often, regularly, operate in our own strength without any expectation from you. We pray that you would lift up our eyes to the heavens. Amidst all the opinions and the distractions and the hustle and bustle of life, Lord, we want to see the heavens opened and hear your voice declare acceptance, approval of Jesus. And may we see ourselves in him. We ask for your help now as we look at your word. Pray your spirit would be at work in us, glorifying Christ. May he be lifted up. May he increase. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Stephen Wellham says there are two basic ways to kind of go after an understanding of who Jesus is. To do Christology the study of Christ. We can do it from below or from above. In simple terms, the study of Christ from below begins with historical proofs, kind of the human perspective of inquiry and reason. And then Christology from above begins with God's revealed word, the Scriptures, who God says Jesus is, what the Scriptures say about Him. Now, Willem doesn't mean to kind of say these these two paths don't overlap in some ways. They do. But one of these paths will be primary and one will be secondary. And he argues that if we primarily are seeking to understand who Jesus is apart from God's word, revelation to us, we will ultimately end up with a Jesus of our own imagination. A Jesus that looks like us, but maybe a little bit better in our own image. In other words, beloved, God has spoken. He's spoken clearly about who Jesus is. And we see that today from language from heaven that draws on words spoken by the prophets hundreds of years previous. I think of particularly Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 as a backdrop for this passage in Luke 3. Psalm 1 is the description of the blessed man whose delight is in the law of the Lord, who's like a tree planted by streams of water, bearing fruit in season, out of season. And by contrast, the wicked are like chaff that the wind drives away. They will not stand in the day of judgment. They will perish. Or Psalm 2, amidst the nations and peoples raging, plotting for power, God laughs and says, As for me, I have set my king. I have installed my king on Zion. And he is my son, And he will have the nations as an inheritance and the ends of the earth as a possession. And he will judge the wicked. So kiss the son, take refuge in him, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. These passages are the the backdrop, the curtain in front or, or behind kind of the introduction of Jesus into his ministry in Luke 3. Which is really the, the beginning of 
God not just speaking about Jesus, but through Jesus. As the author of Hebrews puts it in Hebrews 1, long ago and many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. He has spoken to us by his son, the very word of God. Luke introduces Jesus' ministry really in three ways. And we'll look at these in the coming weeks. But today is his baptism. So we get, a, we get a, a picture of who Jesus is today by looking at his baptism. And then we'll see next week, Lord willing, the genealogy of Christ. And then Jesus' temptation in Luke chapter 4, verses 1 to 13. And then it, he begins his formal ministry, you might say, in chapter 4, verse 14. And our series is called, as I mentioned, Seeing Jesus. And that is our goal, to learn about who Jesus is from above. Not starting with ourselves or our impressions or our backgrounds or our experiences of what we've been through or what we've heard or what people are saying. A lot of opinions and theories about who Jesus is and who he isn't. What he says and what he doesn't say. What it means to live a faithful life as a Christian and what it, what it doesn't mean. But there is really only one real source for the identity of Jesus. And here we're going to see it from God the Father himself. From the word of God himself in our passage today as the heavens open and God verbally speaks and tells us who Jesus is. And I hope we'll listen. I hope we'll always listen to what the scripture teaches us about who God is and who we are. And so today we'll see that the, the main point of what the text and the sermon is that Jesus is above all and is all. He is everything. And Luke is going to call two witnesses to, to, this, to, to the stand to make that case. Uh, the first is the greatest man who ever lived apart from Christ, John the Baptist. The majority of the text here before us covers this first point where John speaks of Jesus. So that's point number one. John speaks of Jesus. Chapter 3, verses 15 to 20. And then the second witness that, that we see Luke bring to the table is God the Father Himself. At Jesus' baptism, the Father speaks of Jesus in verses 21 and 22. Those are the two points this morning to see. John exalts Jesus, the Father exalts Jesus. And my prayer is just that we would follow suit and lift high the name of Jesus. Let's look first at John's testimony of Jesus. Number one, John speaks of Jesus. And we saw last week that John came on the scene uh, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And we said that repentance is a disposition of the mind, a change of mind that leads to a change in action. There's fruit-bearing repentance in our life from this change of heart and mind. For John, his baptism was unique. It prepared the way for the coming of the Messiah. He was the last of the Old Testament prophets, the first voice in this age of fulfillment of all those Old Testament promises. And then the word of the Lord came to John, breaking a period of silence of over 400 years. And then John takes that word and speaks it with power and boldness. So it would be natural for people to ask the question that they do here in verse 15. Look there. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. So if we were in the crowds and we were, we were being caught up in some of this expectation, this messianic fervor, and admittedly some of this is going to be misguided, but we would have looked at John and probably thought the same thing. Could this be the one? I mean, he's the one that Isaiah spoke of. 
He spoke of this one in the wilderness, proclaiming and preparing the way of the Lord. An angel appeared to his father to bring the good news of his birth and kind of outline his ministry. That's, that's abnormal. God spoke to him directly. Directly, like he did with Moses and Jeremiah and Isaiah and Ezekiel. In a few chapters, Jesus is going to say in Luke 7, 28, among those born of women, none is greater than John. And so, yes, they're asking, is this the one? Is this the Messiah? And if we know much about John, we know he's having none of it. He's having none of it. He makes it very clear that he exists to point to Jesus with his life and message. He points people away from himself and to Jesus. And he does it not with a begrudging, I got second place in the competition kind of attitude, but with joy. John, 3, John 3, 29 says, therefore, his, this joy of mine, this is John the Baptist speaking, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, I must decrease. You know there's something different about someone when they are receiving joy from pointing away from themselves and deflecting praise to someone else. True joy is found in making much of Christ, being satisfied in Christ, running to Christ, pointing others to Christ, not to ourselves. Oh Lord, would you make this counterintuitive truth real to us? We must all choose. Will we make much of ourselves or will we make much of Jesus? We can't do both from someone who's tried and tries probably every day to do both. I can do a little bit of me, a little bit of Jesus. Will we live for ourselves or for Jesus? And in my preaching, do I want to impress or to invite you to look on Jesus? Pray for that battle that happens every Sunday for me in my heart. And I know for every other pastor who comes to this pulpit to preach. Evie Hill was a pastor at Mount Zion Missionary Baptist Church in Los Angeles. And he told of an elderly woman in his church that they had nicknamed 1800 because no one knew when she was born. I do not recommend that, friends, ever. But that's the story. And 1800 was, was very hard on visiting preachers. She would sit in the front row. And as soon as a preacher came in, she would say at the very beginning of the sermon, get him up. Referring to Christ. Get him up. And after a few minutes, if she didn't think he was getting him up enough, that Christ wasn't exalted in the sermon, she would say again, get him up. And if the preacher didn't, he was in for a long morning. And friends, that is our job, isn't it? That is my job. Get him up. That, that's what John the Baptist does. He points the expectant crowds who were coming to him he points them to the supremacy of Christ. And he does that in three ways. He points to the, to the first by just comparing himself to, to Jesus. He's saying Jesus is supreme in comparison to me. And his baptism is greater than my baptism. John is kind of named as a baptizer. That's kind of what he does. It's his specialty, John the Baptist. And he's saying he's better at me. He's got a better baptism than I do. So look at verse 16. John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. 
These rabbis and teachers like John were not paid by their students, but the students would show their appreciation for them in various ways by doing menial tasks for them. They would basically do everything for their teachers, for their, for their rabbis. So I imagine in my mind, you know, getting coffee, making arrangements for meeting places, doing administrative things, but essentially they are on par with slaves. They're doing almost, it's this picture of doing everything, servants for their rabbis, except one thing. One early rabbinic saying says this, quote, every service which a slave performs for his master shall a disciple do for his teacher, except the loosing of his sandal thong. In other words, that would be a step too far. So we're not going to go there. We're going to do everything for the teacher, but we're not going to go there. And we understand this. If we've looked at the Bible much in the first century, feet were gross. Feet are probably gross anyway, right? They smell and they have their feet have issues. But here, when you walk around barefoot and with sandals and you're collecting dirt and mud and animal dung on your feet, it's not a happy sight. And so even... even um, the, 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 the disciples and their rabbi would not untie someone's sandal. But John says, I'm unworthy to do that. I'm unqualified to handle the lowest of the low for Jesus. I'm unworthy to untie his sandals. This is the greatest man who ever lived. So that points both to his humility and to the supremacy of Jesus Christ. Jesus is worthy of our reverence. Worthy of our worship. Worthy of our awe. He is everything. So he is supreme, John says to me, but also his baptism is supreme. He turns to the nature of Jesus' baptism. I baptize with water. He's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. And the comparison here is powerful. John's saying, I'm calling people to repent. I'm preaching to them and baptizing them as a sign of their commitment, a sign of their repentance, but, but there's no real power that I have to change people. There's nothing magical about the waters in the Jordan River that make you holy when you go under. Jesus, on the other hand, will baptize people with his Holy Spirit and with fire. And now I, I think these are two aspects of Jesus' baptism. So elements of the same baptism by Jesus. Every believer gets one baptism. There are not two baptisms. And we, as we follow John's baptism, we know this is a, a unique baptism in salvation history preparing for the Messiah. And we need to remember that particularly as we read the book of Acts. And we see even the disciples of John meet up with disciples of Jesus and in the discontinuity there. Unique in salvation history. But at conversion... We are all baptized with the Spirit. And I think that fire here carries the meaning of the refining and purifying work of the Spirit in our lives. And here, here are two reasons, two passages that make me kind of lean that way. One is Malachi 3. Okay, so the last word before John the Baptist, Malachi speaks of this situation that we find ourselves in right now. Malachi 3, verse 1, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, and like fuller's soap. Fuller's would be 
uh, those that were cleaning uh, clothes and they would they would put these these chemical type things on the clothes to get rid of the stains and they would beat the clothes and stamp on the clothes. Kind of that, that word means to tread, to get out the impurities. So a refiner, fuller soap, he will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. So here he's speaking about the coming one and coming in a, in a spirit of fire and a refining spirit, bringing about purity. And then in Isaiah 4, verse 4 is another place. Speaking of the coming one, and when the, the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from in its midst by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning. So in ancient times, uh, the refiners would, would heat metal until it became liquid and then they would skim off the impurities, the dross, you know, and the refiner would, would know when the metal was purified, when he could look into that molten liquid and, and see his own reflection back. And so it is with the Spirit's work in our lives. He melts and skims and molds us into the image of Christ by the power of the Spirit's burning work in us. Now, there's another work of fire that we're going to see here in just a moment. But those who are His, those who have the Holy Spirit, are being refined, made more and more like Jesus. When through fiery trials the pathway shall lie, my grace, all sufficient, shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt me, the I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. So John's water baptism is, is external in compared to Jesus' spirit baptism of spirit and fire that is internal, that changes us, makes us a new creation. One affects the outside of the person, the other the inside. And so when the Holy Spirit falls on the church in, in Acts 2 at Pentecost, it's represented by tongues of fire resting on each one of them. And they will be filled with the Holy Spirit. And there they, they speak in other tongues and languages that could be understood by ethnicities um, from all over. It's like a, like a reversal of the Tower of Babel where they were, the people were scattered and given different languages. And now they're united again around the gospel and able to understand one another by the Holy Spirit. In Acts, what we see is the Spirit falling on the church as a whole. We're going to see a picture of the Spirit coming and resting on Jesus today in His baptism. And then in Acts, we see the Spirit coming on the church and resting on the church as a whole. But all believers, now hear me, hear me, all believers are baptized in the Holy Spirit at conversion. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For in one Spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. And all were made to drink of one Spirit. So we all, there points to the experience of all of us. Every believer. Here's a quick kind of six-part summary of what I think is involved in that baptism of the Spirit at conversion that happens to us by faith when we trust in Christ. Kent Hughes has a great outline of these things. And I'll just mention uh, these quickly. We could do a sermon series on each one. First, it means by the Spirit we are born again. By the Spirit we are born again or regenerated. Jesus told Nicodemus that unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. And later he says specifically, born of the Spirit. So this is the Spirit's work in giving us a new heart, making us alive to God when we were previously dead and lost. So born again, 
Number one. Secondly, every believer is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. John 14, verse 16 says, And I will ask the Father, and He will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the word world cannot receive, because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. You know Him, for He dwells with you and will be in you. So there's a great kind of a, a picture between a comparison of the Old Testament. He will be with you. We see the Holy Spirit active in the Old Covenant with the saints. But now in the New Covenant, living in the saints and dwelling in God's people. Indwelt. Third, every believer is sealed with the Holy Spirit. Sealed with the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1 verse 13. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth... Speaking to responding to this word of truth, the gospel, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So we hear the truth of the gospel. We believe the truth of the gospel and we are sealed by the Holy Spirit. It's this picture of the spirit coming to live inside of us as a down payment, a guarantee on our inheritance. We're marked, we're, we're, we're sealed and protected. We have all of the Holy Spirit. There's a seal. We, we, we don't lose any, we don't gain any. It's there. Both the indwelling and the sealing of the Spirit are one-time events at conversion. We receive the Spirit to live in us. And so I'm just kind of pushing on the idea, maybe an expectation that, that there should be maybe Another experience down the road. I've had many conversations with people who have been in scenarios where they were, they were taught poorly about the, the baptism of the Holy Spirit and that it must be accompanied by signs and wonders. It must be accompanied by the speaking in tongues. And therefore they, they struggle with, for a long time, with just the assurance of their own salvation. So a misunderstanding of what kind of the fruit of the Holy Spirit is in someone's life, the, the fruit that we see in Galatians 5 and in other places. But we know from even the way Paul talks about the use of the Holy Spirit, in the context of the church, in 1 Corinthians 12, he asks, do all speak in tongues? And the clear answer is no, they don't. And so we have this Spirit given to us, a, a one-time event, all the Spirit, and we have it as a down payment deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. We're sealed. Fourth, every believer is prayed for by the Spirit. Prayed for, Romans 8, 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Praise God for this. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Beloved, we have a helper, someone who's gonna help us go to the Father, help us sanctify our, our prayers, who, who knows what we need, who what we really need, who really knows the Father and goes to Him on our behalf. Praise the Lord. He prays for us. Fifth, every believer is sanctified by the power of the Spirit. We're made more like Jesus. Paul says it's by the Spirit we put to death the deeds of the body. Romans 8, 13. Galatians 5, 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Galatians 5, 25. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. We, we don't grow in holiness in our strength, in our own strength but only by the power of the Spirit. Sixth, finally, we are empowered by the Spirit for all of life and ministry. Jesus is going to tell his disciples in Luke's gospel, stay in Jerusalem until you receive the promise from the Father and are clothed with power 
from on high. I find sometimes, especially those of us who, who really want to focus on the Bible and say, I want to be a person of the book, and perhaps we're aware of some abuses uh, in, in some circles of, of the way the, the gifts of the Holy Spirit operate or some teaching that we know isn't, doesn't line up. We, we say, okay, we're going to focus on the book. But if we're going to focus on the book, that means we need to be focused on the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is in the book. The Holy Spirit is in us. And so sometimes I know we, we're, we're, we're in circles and we, you know, we start talking about the Holy Spirit and people start getting big eyes and say, whoa, now, hold on. Let's just stick to the, the Bible. But if you stick to the Bible, you're going to see this power at work through God's people, the power of the Holy Spirit. We don't want to live the Christian life without the Holy Spirit. We cannot. We can't do anything apart from the Holy Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit at work in us when we gather, when we pray, when we read the word, when we share the gospel. We can do nothing apart of the, from the power and work of the Holy Spirit. So John is saying, Jesus is supreme. His baptism is supreme. Fire and spirit. But he's not done. He also lifts him up as judge of the world. Judge of the world. Look at verse 17. His winnowing fork is in hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Here we're back at Psalm 1 and 2. It's harvest time. The grain would be plucked and brought into the threshing floor where then it would be trodden down by the oxen. And then the harvester comes in. And Luke says, Jesus is the harvester. John says, Jesus is the harvester. He comes in and he takes this fork, this winnowing shovel, and sticks it into the world. Sticks it into the, to the, to the grain. And he, he takes it and sh- throws it up in the air. And the, the, the chaff, the little light, airy dust is blown away. In the real wheat, the grain falls down to the floor and is safely gathered into the barn. The chaff then is burned. John is saying Jesus' judgment is perfectly righteous. John gets into a group of people and calls them all brood of vipers, which I love that. But Jesus separates the wheat from the chaff, makes no mistakes. He loses none of his own and no phonies slide past him. His judgment is not only righteous, but it is ultimate, final. Eternity is at the other end of it. An unquenchable fire. Unending, unceasing torment and judgment for those that reject the Son. Psalm 2. Jesus does not shy away from speaking about hell and judgment. So friends, don't shy away from thinking much on the reality of hell. Don't harden your hearts to this. Our sin is against a holy and righteous God. And you can bank on the fact that we have underestimated just how holy and righteous He is and what we actually deserve. Every person that you meet today will face the winnowing fork of Jesus. So, Let's not pretend. Just think about it. It will matter not one bit if your parents are pleased with you because you go to church, your grandparents, people that you know, 
but you're really deep down putting on a facade. It will not matter. Come clean with Jesus. Don't delay being serious with your walk with Jesus. Your personal faith in Jesus Christ. Respond to the good news. I think it's interesting that that's the way this message sounds pretty hellfire and brimstone is is summarized in verse 18. So with many other exhortations, he preached the good news to the people. I love that Luke calls what John is preaching good news. Certainly there are other things he was saying, but he includes the message of sin and repentance and judgment in the preaching of good news, and we should too. There is no good news apart from the bad news. So may we just be faithful in our proclamation of the good news, no matter the cost. And it just makes the person and work of Jesus so much more wonderful and sweet to us. John pays the price for his faithfulness. You see it in verse 19. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them, and he locked up John in prison. So Luke just kind of in passing uh, mentions this. But we know this about John. He's, he's no discriminator in the truth. He's faithful with it. We know from other Gospels that John called Herod out for his adultery, divorcing his wife, marrying Herodias, who was married to Herod's half-brother. And that wasn't all that Herod had done, apparently, but he's, he's also locking John up. He's going to put him in prison for this. Friends, I love the security that John has in his relationship with God that frees him from fear of man. And so, may the Lord just help us to be faithful in all that we do, no matter the situation. We know that John's imprisonment is eventually going to lead to his death. It's going to lead to his execution. We'll learn more about that as we continue. We'll come back to John later in our study. Luke only kind of mentions this in in passing, perhaps to show the forerunner to Jesus is a preview of how the ministry of Jesus will also end. Faithfulness that will lead to rejection and death. But death will not be the end. So that's John's testimony of who Jesus is. And then he kind of goes off the scene and the spotlight turns to Jesus himself. And so with the time that we have left, let's look together at the way the Father speaks of Jesus in verses 21 and 22. Now we're back at the Jordan River, and many have come to be baptized by John as a sign of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And we read this, verse 21. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized. Let's just leave it there. Luke doesn't focus on the baptism itself much, but what happens after. But I just don't want to pass over this without observing what is taking place. And I do think we, we get more in Matthew, for example, Matthew chapter 3. Uh, John would have prevented him, Matthew says, saying, I need to be baptized by you, Do not come, and you, but yet you come to me. But Jesus answered him and said, let it be so, for it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he consented. I, I like the way Luke points to it, just a slight difference with Jesus you know, all the others had been baptized. So it's kind of, kind of this, this turning point. And then Jesus also was baptized. He was, he was different. He had no need to repent. He had lived 30 years of perfect righteousness, sinlessness. But he comes to fulfill the law in all righteousness. And he had. 
perfectly. Just try to see this in terms of salvation. He stands here before John as our righteousness. The obedience that you and I owe the Father, Jesus fulfilled. And here, right here, he is identifying with sinners. Those that need to repent in order to be saved. Jesus taking the place of sinners, standing in line with sinners to be baptized for sins he did not commit. You might say he's being numbered with transgressors. Isaiah 53, 12. Jesus is willing to be reckoned as a sinner so that sinners could be saved. This is his story. This is his mission. And it will culminate not in water, but on a cross. On a criminal's cross. A cursed cross. Where he will then effectively and finally take the place of sinners. He will then bear their sin. Bear their curse. Pay their penalty. Endure their shame. Absorb their guilt. That they might have his righteousness. This is the good news. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him we might become, we might become the righteousness of God. For no matter your situation, this good news is for you. Someone has taken your place. Someone who has provided you with a righteousness before God. And paid the penalty that you deserve for your sins. He died in your place. He rose from the grave and is alive Would you come to him? Would you believe him? Would you turn from your sin and put your trust in him? He is God's perfect son sent to save a people for himself. But you don't need to take my word for it. Listen to God. Continue there. Let's go back to verse 21. Now when all the people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, Luke's the only one that mentions that he's praying when this happens. We don't know what he's praying, but we know the heavens are about to open and the Holy Spirit is about to come down. Father's about to speak. And I'm just so convicted every time I see Jesus, the Son of God, praying before these miraculous, amazing things happen. How often do we have this marking our own lives, a spirit of prayer and dependence? If he is praying, beloved, are we praying? He's praying, and the heavens were opened. Literally torn apart, ripped apart. Then we read in verse 22, And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with with you I am well pleased. Nothing like this has ever happened in the Bible, in history. All categories are shattered here. The Holy Spirit takes bodily form in the form of a dove, comes down on Jesus. It's a public event. All seem to be witnessing witnessing it. We know from other Gospels that John speaks of it. I'm not sure of all the significance in the dove. Uh, It's interesting to think about. Uh, One of the Puritans, Thomas Goodwin, uh, points out the nature of the dove as faithful and gentle. He writes a lot, actually, about this how it might characterize the ministry of Jesus, the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Perhaps there's an allusion to to Noah who received the dove after the flood and Jesus comes up as the savior of his people out of the waters of judgment, receives this dove, a picture of the new creation that is beginning. 
But the Spirit descends bodily on Jesus and empowers and anoints him for his ministry. And the connection between the Spirit and the Son is key for understanding who Jesus is. There are several passages. I'll mention two. One is Isaiah 61, that Jesus will quote himself. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and to the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of the vengeance of our God. All that together to comfort all who mourn. It's the work of Jesus, empowered, anointed by the Spirit. Isaiah 42.1 Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights, I have put my Spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He's conceived by the Spirit, filled with its wisdom, empowered by it to resist temptation, which we'll see, to preach the kingdom of God, to worship His Father in heaven, Perform mighty miracles. It's the power of the Spirit that that leads him to offer his body on the cross for our sins, the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 9.14. And by the power of the Spirit, he is raised from the dead, Romans 1.4. And this is the same Spirit, beloved, that lives in us. Christ gives us the Spirit. We serve Jesus, live and trust God to make our ministry effective by the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is prepared by his ministry here through this beautiful combination of anointing and approval, empowerment and endorsement. We've seen the anointing and the the empowerment. Let's look at the endorsement and the approval. God's voice is heard from heaven. You are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Now, God here is declaring on earth what has always been in heaven. This is not new information. Jesus' sonship is eternal. John the Baptist knew something of Jesus' holiness, but only the Father could fully proclaim His worth. Only the Father could fully proclaim His pleasure and acceptance in the Son. And this relationship, this beauty... This love is only and can only be understood through a God that is triune. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Look at the beautiful picture of our God. God the Son praying. God the Spirit descending. God the Father pronouncing the approval of the Son. The Son prays, the Spirit descends, the Father speaks. You you can't be a modalist and believe this passage. That God appears sometimes as the Father and then sometimes as the Son and sometimes as the Spirit. Can't be a Muslim and say that our gods are all the same. No, there's an eternal love here that there is no comparison. There's a relationship here that is like none none other. God is love. And we see that pictured here in His Trinity. One God, three eternally distinct persons. And we just stand back and worship and awe and joy. Because the words that the Father says are the words that we all long to hear. He's saying, son, I love you. I approve and accept you as my son. I am proud of you. I am pleased with you. Jesus is pleasing to his Father, both in his person and his mission. So God is pleased with Jesus' life, his holiness, and his perfect love, and his humility. 
Can you fathom the one that John was unworthy to tie, untie his sandals is going to take up the servant's towel and not just untie the disciples' sandals, but wash their feet? Even the one who would betray him. Jesus humbles himself to the lowest, even to death on a cross. The Father is pleased with Jesus, with everything about him. And friend, if you understand the good news of the gospel, and you've trusted in Christ, you need to know that God feels the exact same way about you. He's pleased with you. The Father's words of affection and approval for His Son are also for everyone who has faith in His Son. We stand before the Father on the merit of the Son. This is our hope when we are lonely and fearful and anxious and burdened. No matter what we've done, In Christ, God is not disappointed with us. He's not impatient with us, not unloving toward us, not upset with us, not tired of us. But he looks at us and says, my beloved son or daughter, I love you. I am pleased with you. You are mine. Oh, don't you want that to be true of you? Come to Jesus. What else can we do? What else can we do but join the psalmist in Psalm 34? Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. This is what doing Christology looks like from above, from the heavens, hearing the voice of God declare that this is my beloved son in who I am well pleased. This is what God the Father says about Jesus. This is what the greatest man who ever lived says about Jesus. He's the righteous man of Psalm 1, the son of God in Psalm 2, the son and servant of Isaiah that receives the Father's delight. Let's get him up. Let's exalt him in our hearts, in our lives, in our affections, that he would increase. Amen? Amen. 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 Let's pray. Lord, we confess our need for you and All of you, Lord, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, thank you for working in our redemption. Thank you for the beautiful picture of love, the beautiful triunity that we see here in our passage. Lord, teach us, instruct us, just as we look and stare at Luke, as we look at Jesus, teach us, show us. We want more of you. We love you. We want to see you increase in all that we do. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.